Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. Our guest today is Dr. Michael Angs. He's the owner-operator of Arizona Heritage Tours, LLC. He's also a history consultant to organizations like Kanoa Ranch of Pima County, the Tucson Museum of Art, the Tucson Presidio Trust, and most recently, the Black Pilots of America. He has a story that he's been uh, studying and developing over the years. It's called The Clash at Bear Valley. Welcome, Michael Angs. Well, thanks for inviting me, Amanda. And what is The Clash of Bear Valley about? Why did you choose to pursue it? Well, The Clash at Bear Valley is a, the last firefight between indigenous people on the continental United States and the Buffalo Soldiers in 1918. We're celebrating the 100th anniversary because it happened in January 1918. How did you happen to learn about it? Well, I, I found out about this particular story from an article uh, by Colonel H.B. Warfield called The Yaki Indian Fight. It was ex excerpted and reprinted in 1964 in a book called The Black Military Experience in the West, edited by John M. Carroll. And it begins with a report. The report is from the Southern Department of the military, Sam Houston, Texas, to the War Department in Washington, D.C., dated January 19, 1918. Quote, a detachment of American cavalry sent into Bear Valley, 25 miles west of Nogales, to observe trails clashed with a band of Yaqui Indians, captured 10, one of whom died in the hospital at Nogales of wounds, according to a telegram from the commander at Nogales. Reported from Douglas, Arizona, January 10, 1918. And that, that was enough to get you started. Yeah, I began to think, why is this a story better known, since it's the last major Indian battle on the continental United States, other than the 1898 uh, battle in Minnesota with the Chippewa. And then I began to realize, as I talked to more people about it, including uh, a colleague of mine at Pima College many years ago, Ernie Kiroga, his brother Robert and the Yaqui carver uh, Luis Valenzuela, that they found that my interest was very, very compelling, but they didn't seem to be interested. And so over the years, I've wondered, why, why don't people want to know more about this story? So what I did is I basically went back to the uh, history of the Yaqui. And after reading two volumes on the history of the Yaqui back to 1774, uh, 1770s, I began to realize that for them, this story is not really compelling because I don't, I don't admit to be a, a expert on the Yaqui, but just take one period in their history. Around 1740, there was a Yaqui revolt in central Mexico and um, over 1,000 Spanish soldiers were killed, but over 5,000 Native Americans were killed. So we're looking at a, at a period in time, 1918, in which World War I has been going on for many years. Over one million people are dead at the Battle of the Somme in 1916, 900 at the Battle of Verdun, 800 at Bailey Wood in 1918. So even for us as Americans, a story about 10 Yome Indians in Arizona in 1918 seems to pale by comparison. 
And the reason I found the story so compelling is because a story has to have weight, Amanda. It has to have some sort of value to it. And I thought in looking at the background of the story that it had great value because you're looking at a story that has uh, at least four characteristics that make it a compelling story. One is a clash of cultures, ancient and modern. You know, we're talking things like uh, Rudyard Kipling's Battle of East and West, or we're talking about um, Last of the Mohicans by James Fenimore Cooper. You have two cultures clashing. And this story has those two cultural clashing, the Yaki and the Buffalo Soldiers. Secondarily, a story needs a first-hand or eyewitness account. And this story has an eyewitness account. A person we'll talk about in a moment, a Blondie writer who was commander of the 10th Cavalry at the time, wrote a letter and did an interview that told about that day and what was happening that particular day. So you have that first-hand account, which to historians is golden. And then you need to have a first or last, and this is the last major firefight between indigenous people and American soldiers on the continental United States. So you have that. And then if you have a centennial date, which we have, because this happened 100 years ago last month, then all of a sudden you've got another compelling story. But in all of that, you can still be captured by what I call historical hubris, which means you're so compelled by the story, you think everybody else is compelled by the story. And not a lot of people are compelled by this story. I like it because of the fact that we had an opportunity, going back to a good story has to have a firsthand account, to the fact that there was a young man of 11 years old at this battle who was captured by the Buffalo Soldiers. And if we had felt that this story was important, we could have talked to him or somebody who talked to him. Because if he was 11 years old, in 1918, 50 years later, which would have been 1968, he was still around had he lived. And somebody talked to him about this day at Bear Valley. And to have a firsthand account of history like this is amazing in this day and time. So the clash at Bear Valley to me still has some weight to it, but I think the weight is more our understanding of the suffering of the Yaqui people over hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, why they were there that day, and why perhaps we still should recognize that we as Americans should be concerned with the welfare of our other citizens, including Yaqui. And we were in this story, and that's the story that I'm going to be telling today. Because in 1918, or the winter of 1917, uh, what was happening here on the border was very similar to what's happening now. There were a lot of incursions. Remember, we're right at the end of the Mexican Revolution. Uh, Pancho Villa has been uh, invading since 1916 and was chased way deep into Mexico by the punitive expedition under Pershing and Charles Young, the third black graduate of West Point. So we're into now 1918. And during that winter, which was a very harsh winter, ranchers started noticing around the area of Nogales a lot of dead cattle with pieces cut out of them. The cattle weren't killed by the Yaqui. They were killed by winter kill, which means it was a very harsh winter. There was very little forage. And so the cattle basically died of starvation. But the Yaquis were cutting their moccasins out of the skins. 
of these cattle. And the number of sightings of Yaki during this particular period, the winter of 1718, 1917, 1918, was increasing and ranchers were becoming uneasy. The Yaquis were never um, attacking ranchers because they needed the United States as a haven. Because what was happening is they were going through a period of almost extermination by the Mexican government in central Mexico because the Yaqui River flowing out of the Sierra Madre into the Gulf of California is probably one of the richest river valleys in Mexico. And the Mexicans lusted after that land. The Yaquis have been protected for many years from incursions because one, they didn't die off as frequently as other tribes from the diseases that the Europeans were bringing in. They didn't have a lot of obvious gold and silver deposits. And the Jesuits coming in as early as the 1700s had organized them into different villages and protected them against uh, slavery by the Mexican government. So they had been somewhat protected, though constant revolts were occurring like the one I mentioned earlier. And once the seriousness of the Diaz regime uh, to take over Yaqui lands really reached a height in about 1918, the Yaquis, who had always, for many years, been working here across the border in the agricultural fields, they were some of the first migrant workers, especially in citrus, uh, started going back and forth across the border to help their fellows in Mexico, bringing weapons, ammunition, um, money, whatever the people in Mexico who were related to them needed. And on this particular occasion of the spring, uh, January of 1918, the ranchers began to see increasing signs of this movement of Yaquis back and forth across the border. And it started to worry them. So they put out a call to the army that they needed more protection. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And as a consequence, the army started patrolling out of Fort Huachuca, particularly the 10th Cavalry, and the 35th Infantry, uh, an Anglo, more Anglo unit, and um, moving west towards what is now called Bear Valley which is just west of Nogales, Arizona. Yeah, it was just after the New Year's celebration on January 18th, Captain Blondie Ryder and Troop E of the 10th Cavalry drew an assignment to um, go out to the area of Bear Valley on a patrol. It was a perfect area for patrol because there was a high ridge to the east. They could look down and see all the way across the valley, almost to the border, and they saw a group of Native Americans crossing over, a large group. And they immediately uh, saddled up and uh, took their horses and pursued the Native Americans. And a running battle occurred in which the Native Americans and the Buffalo soldiers were shooting each other pretty much inaccurately. Uh, nobody was wounded at that particular point. And um, 10 of the Yaqui stayed behind as a protective force. We don't know how large the, the force was, probably as many as 30 to 50 people. Ten stayed behind with the Yaqui to basically uh, prevent the Buffalo soldiers from capturing the entire group. And they, during the firefight, they were doing typical running from place to place, trying to find shelter, taking shots at each other, uh, a battle that was so typical of what happened in the West over the last 100 years. And then one of them, one of the Yaqui Indians, burst out into the open, stumbled, and a corporal, next to Captain Blondie Ryder, wonderful name, isn't it, uh, shot and an explosion occurred on the body of the Indian. He still rose up and ran behind cover, 
But after several more minutes, uh, the Yaquis uh, surrendered. They were captured, lined up. There were 10 of them. And this particular Yaki had basically been wounded because his ammunition belts that were wrapped around his body had been struck by the bullet from the buffalo soldier and had exploded. So he was holding his stomach. Captain Ryder thought he was trying to conceal a weapon. So he pulled his hands away and literally his insides tumbled out because of the explosion of the ammunition on his gun belt. And he was taken by car uh, later that day into Nogales, but died on the way, according to a letter from one of the uh, uh, young women who lived in the area and basically uh, talked a lot to the soldiers of not the Buffalo Soldier Group, but the 35th Infantry. They must have been for a ranch girl in Arabaca country of Arizona in 1918. Probably the best catch you could uh, find at that time. And so as a consequence, he died in, uh, in the hospital. They captured uh, uh, nine of the ten Yaki. Uh, one was an 11-year-old boy. Antonio Flores was his name. And he was released, but the others were indicted by the grand jury in Tucson, Arizona in February of 1918 under the uh, jurisdiction of Judge William H. Sawtell. And this is what I think makes this story so important, is Judge Sawtell asked the question, why are they being indicted? Because they didn't necessarily initiate this firefight. And the response was from the prosecuting attorney that they had broken weapons laws. They did, and I quote, wrongfully, unlawfully, and feloniously export to Mexico certain arms and ammunition to wit 300 rifle cartridges, about nine rifles, without first processing an export license issued by the War Trade Board of the United States. In an era when everybody is carrying a weapon, how would nine rifles and nine people who own those rifles be accused of smuggling? Because everybody was carrying a weapon. You're listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Our guest today is Dr. Michael Engs. He's the owner-operator of Arizona Heritage Tours, LLC, and he's a history consultant. Today, Dr. Michael Engs is bringing us the story of the clash at Bear Valley just about 100 years after it took place in January 1918. So the judge found, the Sawtell found it difficult not to uh, go with the recommendation of the prosecutor to prosecute these nine Yaki for weapons violations. And so he basically released the 11-year-old boy, Antonio Flores, and found the rest guilty of not presenting a permit for transporting weapons to Mexico. And because they had been with the Buffalo Soldiers, the 35th Infantry didn't want to be bothered taking care of these Yaquis between January when they were captured and February when they finally went to court in Tucson. And so as a consequence, the Buffalo Soldiers had been taking care of them. And at this point, it doesn't say for sure, but the judge sentenced them to 30 days in jail for the weapons violation, which could have been time served. It doesn't say that, but I suspect maybe that's close to what happened. And then the Mexican consulate, General Callas, went berserk. He wanted these Yaquis transported back to Mexico. 
for this violation. And this is where the interesting part of the story really occurs, because Sawtell went into consultation and thought about this whole request from Mexican Council. And because he's a Westerner, he believes in everybody's right to survive, because we are a surviving people in a very harsh environment. And he realized if he was going to transfer these Nanyaki back to Mexico, that very likely they'd be executed by the Mexican government. And to him, this meant double jeopardy under Alonso. So he said, no, we won't send them back to you. And from that point on, we don't actually know what happened to them. Um, we do know the 11-year-old boy, Antonio, uh, Antonio Flores, was probably still alive for many years after. It's a shame that uh, uh, we haven't contacted somebody who knows his story. And I'm hoping that uh, because of this broadcast and because of my contact with the tribe over many, many years, um, maybe somebody will come forward and say, I knew him. I heard his story. And then we'll really have the full story of the clash at Bear Valley. Because so far, it's only been told by those who participated on the American side and on the Buffalo Soldier side. And as I said, the story has weight because it has a firsthand account. But to have two sides of a story like this would be extremely unique because in most cases we don't get both sides, especially in one particular presentation. And that would really start to set a tone for how we tell the story of the Western expansion here in Arizona, is to have stories that tell both sides rather than just one side. But the side that we do have is, is interesting because Captain Blondie Ryder was later interviewed by one of his colleagues about this story. Turns out that um, Warfield, who wrote the article that I mentioned earlier, interviewed Captain Ryder many, many, many years after the battle. The first-hand account to me is one of the most interesting parts of this particular story, how Captain Ryder talks about the death of the Yaki commander of this group, how he talks about uh, the trip back to Nogales and how the uh, particular person died, how many weapons they had, the nature of the uh, mining community that was in Aravaca and around Nogales at that particular time. All of these are not as important as they might be to people right now because of our interest in World War I, the punitive expedition that happened a year before this. There's a lot overriding this. But a hundred years from now, there may be some people who just want to know what was the last major Indian battle on the continental United States? And it would have been this one, the Clash of Air Valley. Michael Langs, is there something that happened during this particular clash that caused any further clashes to cease? Was it a time in history when that was finally done? That's, that's a really excellent question because from the Yaki perspective, I would think that they would say, and I can't speak for them, is that they never surrendered, not in Mexico and not in, in, on here in the United States. So this particular battle is still going on. Uh, their, their battle for freedom and integrity and, uh, and the right to, to live peacefully as a people who have been here for thousands of years still goes on. And this battle is just one symbol of that struggle. And I think that's what makes it important for us as Arizonans and uh, as Americans is that we oftentimes think that things are over when in fact they're still continuing on. The fight for integrity, for freedom, for the right to, to live as they would like for the Yaki is still continuing. And um, 
the divisions that we create on the border um, through the efforts of the government are preventing not only them, but the Tohon and other tribes who basically were here before there was a border to struggle to maintain their indigenous culture across artificial barriers that we set up as countries. When we drew the line in the sand that we now call the Mexican border, we separated many tribes. So um, I don't think that this story loses importance as long as that is true, that do the indigenous people have a right to passage from one place to another to their ancestral lands, despite the fact that we now, as international and national entities, have borders? And I think that's still a question that we're wrestling with today. And I think that's why this story has a great deal of weight, is the border issue is not over yet. In fact, it may just be getting another phase in many people's minds. Well, I just think um, that oftentimes history captures you because of coincidence. You know, the fact that I read this story in a book uh, many years ago, that I've followed the story through discussions with people for many, many years, that it has so little weight for most people, and yet for me, it was immense. And I think part of that is coincidence, because when Judge Chautel decided to release or give a minimum sentence to the Yaqui in 1918, the date of that order was April 8, 1918. I was born on April 8th. So it was like my birth date. And when a historian stumbles upon little facts like that, it becomes even more interesting because now you've got a very mysterious kind of effect occurring with the story. Dr. Michael Angs, you've been studying history and the history of this region for some time, and the history of all peoples in a way, but the focus on the African diaspora. Uh, you've studied a lot about the Buffalo soldiers. I've heard you discuss being sensitive to depicting the heroism and the everyday life of African-descended people in this region, as well as being sensitive to the story of indigenous people. How does that work for you? Well, I think that I talked about this just yesterday at the, the black market that was held on Scott with a lot of people who were coming in to do shopping. And I, we set up a table simply to talk about our business of teaching history. And people will go, well, why, why is this important? And the reason it's important is because when you talk to school groups of young children, they're always, especially if they're people of color, African Americans, waiting to be insulted and shamed. Because American history, as it's taught now uh, to black children, is a shaming process. It's a process of saying you came from slavery, and that's all that you represent. When in fact, here in the Southwest, we came from a group of free people who began migrating north in 15, 19, 15, 20, and 1 because Cortez was freeing his slaves for their military service. And some people suggest there was a huge population of free black people in New Spain, which is now Mexico, from that time on, that moved north to Sinaloa and then to Tubac. Uh, the Park Service says a third of the party that went to found the city of San Francisco and the San Francisco Presidio in 1776 were of African descent. 
And you notice when you tell those stories that the children's heads come up, their shoulders straighten, and then all of a sudden they are somewhat changed by the idea that not everybody that they're going to hear about was a slave. And it makes a difference. Not the day that you talk to that child, but 10 years from that day, that person's consciousness will be different. They'll be more proud of themselves and their race and the people they came from. And that's significant to me. Before we go, Dr. Angs, uh, I always like to ask you what you're working on next. Well, we have several stories that uh, we're researching. Um, we're trying to uh, put m many of these stories together in a graphic format so that's more accessible to young people. So we're working with several people in the community. We want to keep it a, a local process and not uh, farm it out to uh, any further. But Arizona Heritage Tours would like to, in the next two or three years, come out with a graphic novel, uh, like a classic comic of all these stories from Estevan to the Buffalo Soldiers to Bear Valley. Uh, one of the most interesting stories I'm working on right now is to try to make the connection of where wheat came from. Because according to Charles Mann in his book, 1493, a person in Cortez's army named Juan Garrido, who was African, uh, of African descent, planted some of the first wheat in the New World right outside of Mexico City. And what I'm trying to do is find people in this community who are experts on wheat who can make the link between Sonoran white, which is what we value here, in the Santa Cruz River Valley, and that wheat that was planted in Juan Garrido's garden in 1521. If I can make that connection, it is a most interesting story. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Our guest today has been Dr. Michael Angs. He's the owner-operator of Arizona Heritage Tours, LLC. He's a history consultant to organizations such as Kanoa Ranch of Pima County, the Tucson Museum of Art, Tucson Presidio Trust, and most recently, the Black Pilots of America. Today, he told us the story of the clash at Bear Valley, which took place uh, just over 100 years ago in January 1918.